Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to help yourself to the one that's in the rack there in front of you or on the seat beside you. Put your name in it, make it yours. And we really do want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Christmas really changed things. That might win the prize for the biggest understatement ever made. But it's profoundly true, and it's important to think about. When Jesus, okay, just try to, try to get this. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, it says in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The eternal Word of God. When he took on humanity in the womb of Mary and was born into this world of sorrow, his coming brought about massive changes. And there is... There's nothing trivial about Christmas. Now, in our world, you know, our, our world does a lot to trivialize Christmas, and we can, we can think about it in trivial ways, we can celebrate it in trivial ways, but when you're, you know, the decorate, you can make it all about the decorations, you can make it all about uh, the parties, you can make it all about the gift giving, and I'm not implying that any of those things are bad. But the heart of Christmas, the central meaning of Christmas is so much greater. What Jesus came to accomplish is massively significant. So much so that it's a challenge to try to wrap our minds, wrap our hearts around it. And as I said, I think in the last message, we really don't want to let the truths about Christmas Simply be interesting to us. Jesus did not come just to be interesting. He didn't come just to, you know, give us a reason to have a party. Well, that's not all bad. He didn't come just to merely affect our theology. Jesus came to change things. He came to change you. He came to change me. He came to change our lives, to transform us, and to give us a future. He came to give us things that you and I would never have if He hadn't come. Things like hope. Rock-solid hope in the face of suffering and death. He came to give us joy, enduring joy, joy that can endure all affliction. He came to give us life, eternal life. It's, it's staggering. In fact, the changes that Jesus brought about by his coming are so big, so great, that our calendars actually divide history into two eras, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, Latin for in the year of our Lord. History divided. Chum. 
right in two by the coming of Christ. And that, that division, that dividing of history is exactly what the, the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Galatians 3 at the end of the chapter. He is talking about what things were like for us, for humanity, what things were like before Jesus came and how things changed when Jesus came. So I want you to see it. We're in Galatians chapter 3. There's a note sheet in your folder. It has verses on it. And let's look. Galatians 3, beginning at verse 23 to the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, Now, before faith came, or better, the faith came. Here it's talking not so much about the act of believing, but what we believe, the content, the truth, the gospel of Jesus. Before the faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So notice the time words that Paul uses here. Verse 23, we have the words before and until. And then we have in verse 24 another use of until. Then in verse 25, we have the words now and no longer. So there's a before and there's a now. And the dividing line between before and now is when Christ came, verse 24. And the differences, the changes between before and now are dramatic, to say the least. And I believe it'll be good for us to spend some time thinking about some of these changes that Jesus brought about by his coming. Because, here's why I think it's important, because it will serve as fuel for the fires of worship in our hearts. You know, if you make, if you make a fire, I mean a real fire, I, we've got one of those gas fireplaces, and I love it, because I can build a fire by pushing a button. Whoosh. But to build a real fire, or you know, if you're camping and you build a campfire, and, and that fire starts to die down, what do you do? Well, you hopefully have some good fuel to put on it, some good dry firewood, and you add that wood and the fire, the flames, you know, spring back up and uh, burn with new intensity. Worship is like a fire. It needs fuel 
And God has given us that fuel in the form of glorious truths about himself, about his son, about all that Jesus did and will do. And as we, as you and I speak these glorious truths to one another, as we read them, as we sing them, as we meditate on them, God's Holy Spirit takes that fuel and uses it to fan the flames of worship in our hearts. That's what worship, that's the source, that's that's where worship comes from. God taking His truth and making it burn in our hearts. And it's so important that we do this. It is so important that we do this because there is so much in this world that conspires to quench the flames of worship in our hearts. You know this. I mean, the brokenness of the world, we see it all the time. The brokenness in our own lives, the, uh, the schemes of our spiritual enemy, even just the busyness of the season. Okay, all of these things can be like little fire extinguishers that come up to us and go, And try to extinguish the flames of worship in our hearts. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. God's Spirit right now wants to take the truths about His Son and the coming of His Son. And He wants to rekindle white hot worship in your heart. Or if it's never been kindled because you have never yet put your trust in Jesus and ask him to make you a genuine worshiper of God who worships him in spirit and truth, that is what the Spirit of God would accomplish in your heart today, to make you a worshiper and to fan into flame. So ask him. Ask him right now. Just pray that God will use these truths to stoke the fires of worship in your heart. And then let it come out your mouth and in your life. So what I want to do is I want to use the time framework, the time framework that we see here in Galatians. I want to highlight some of the spectacular, and I use that word intentionally, some of the spectacular changes Jesus brought about when he came, and how those changes affect us in profound ways. So we're going to look at before, before Jesus came, And then we're going to look at now that Jesus has come. And then we're going to look at one more time period. It's not explicitly stated here, but it's here. It's here. It's wrapped up in that word, air. You see it in verse 29, the word air? Okay, air is a word that points us to the future. Because an heir is somebody who's expecting what? An inheritance that's coming. And it's definitely coming, but it has not yet been fully received. So to describe that third time period connected to Jesus coming, I'm going to use the word soon. So we're going to look at before, now, and soon. Start with before. Before Christ came, before we were limited by law. 
Before Christ came, we were limited by law. And I am using that word limited. I mean severely limited. Very severely limited. Verse 23, before faith came, we were, look at the words, held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Okay, well, to be held captive, to be imprisoned, uh, that is to be severely limited in what we could do or experience. Karen and I have a, an acquaintance who has been in prison for the last couple of years, and occasionally we get letters from him, and he describes what life is like for him. And he is so limited. There is so much he can't do. There are so many good things. And you and I take completely for granted that he cannot experience. He is so limited because of his foolish choices. That is a good illustration of what life is like before Christ. Because of our sin, our foolish sin, we were limited. We were excluded. We were confined by God's law. We saw last time that one of the primary reasons, not the only reason, but one of the primary reasons that God gave us his law was to reveal to us. This was a gracious thing of God to reveal to us that our condition is absolutely hopeless apart from him. It's hopeless on our own. Verse 22 of chapter 3, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. God gave the law one of his reasons was to imprison us, to make us aware of how completely hopeless our situation is that we would turn and look and cry out for mercy, which Jesus came to give us. But before Christ, we were prisoners. We were locked up because we violated God's law. Uh, verse 24. Now here's another way to look at it. Another expression, limiting, so not using the language of prison any longer, but look at verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came. Now that word guardian, okay, so you have to know something about the culture in which Paul was living. It was the Roman Empire, and a guardian in a Roman family was an adult servant who had charge over a kid. And this guardian's job we kind of get the impression from guardian. So this guy's job would be to make sure that kid got to school, that kid got home from school, that kid did the homework, and didn't get into trouble. His job was to limit that kid's freedom. You don't get to do what you want to do. You get to go to school, and I'm going to make sure you go. And I'm going to make sure you get home. And yeah, and all that fun stuff you want to go do, forget it. I'm here to say no. In fact, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, so this is the very next chapter, starts out saying, the heir, as long as he's a child, 
is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything. Okay, this kid might be going to inherit the biggest family fortune ever, but he doesn't have it now. He's no different than a slave. Very limited, very limited. I want to give you a couple examples of how we were limited by the law before Christ came. A couple of examples. First, we could call unfinished atonement. Before Christ came, we were limited by the law to an unfinished atonement. That is, that until Jesus came and took on humanity for the reason. Do you know why, God, why the Son of God took on humanity? So he could die. Because God can't die. But in becoming man, Jesus could. So until he came, took on humanity, and died in our place, there was no final and complete solution for our sin problem, which is our biggest problem. Okay, we don't always recognize it as our biggest problem, but it's absolutely our biggest problem because sin disqualifies us, excludes us from God's holy presence. God is holy, holy, holy. And sin disqualifies us. And though the law, okay, so the law, the law that God gave through Moses, that provided a system of sacrifices to atone for sin. The, those atoning sacrifices were never enough to make anyone right with God forever. Never. Under the law, the Israelites had priests. They had these priests who continually offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. There was no end to it because it was never finished. It was never complete. Look at Hebrews 10. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin completely. This is a reminder all the time. It's not done. It's not done. It's not done. Continually having to bring sacrificial animals to the temple courtyard and have the priest, and you had to, you had to watch this animal be slain because of your sin and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again. So it was never done. No final solution. The atonement was perpetually unfinished. And the other example of limit we could call segregated access. Segregated access. Under the law of Moses, there were definite limits to how close you could draw to God in worship. How close you could get, how close you could approach. 
God and worshiped. So if you were an average Israelite, you could only come to the temple courtyard or the tabernacle before the temple was built. You could only come to the courtyard. Priests took it from there. Now the priests, to be a priest, you had to just be born into the tribe of Levi and be made a priest. The priest, those people could actually go into the temple, into what was called the holy place. You couldn't go, they could go. And then there was the place called the holy of holies. And in that place, in all of earth, that is where God manifested his presence in a very unique way. And only one person could go in there, the high priest. And he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement after following very carefully the rules that God had laid down. So the point is, you could only get so close. And if you were not an Israelite, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't even get that close. The temple was given to the Jews. These people to whom God chose to make himself known and to dwell among. That was the whole point of the temple. That's the whole point of the sacrifices. That was the way that God set up so that he, the infinitely pure and holy God, made a way for his presence to dwell in the midst of sinful people. The only so if you know so if you were a Gentile, if you weren't born Jewish, there was only one way for you to get in on that. That was basically to become a Jew. Undergo circumcision if you're a guy and follow all the laws of Moses. That's it. Now, we're all Americans, and uh, you know, we're very much into equal access and freedom and all this stuff. And so we might very well, this might bother us. And we might be tempted to ask, why would God do that? Why would God limit how close people could get to him? And why would God exclude anyone? You know what question we really should ask? This is the question we should ask. Why would God allow any sinner to get anywhere near him? See, we don't get it. We just don't get it. We don't realize how awful sin is. We don't realize, we don't feel how utterly holy and distinct and set apart God is. We just don't get how completely offensive it is to the holiness of God, our sin, and how much we don't deserve to experience any of God's goodness ever. We, you know, we, we tend to get offended by the idea of segregated worship. We ought to be astonished. We ought to be astonished that God ever allows anyone into his presence. And see, the law, by these limits, 
by unfinished atonement, by segregated access, God was showing the world. God was showing the world that knowing Him and drawing near to Him is a privilege that nobody deserves. Nobody deserved to be an Israelite. Nobody, no Israelite deserved to be a priest. You got no control over that. You You don't get to choose what family you're born into, what nation you're born into. And so drawing near to God has always, don't miss it, has always been entirely a matter of grace. Drawing near to God is a matter of grace. It's never deserved. We draw near to Him on His terms, not ours. And this is what makes the gospel such good news. Because Jesus came to fulfill those terms for us. 1 Peter 3.18. It's not on your sheet, but you might want to jot it down. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. Those are staggering words. To bring you to God. So let's look at now. That was before. Now, you know, before we were limited by law, now we are family by faith. We are family by faith. This verse, this is one of those verses that ought to take our breath away. It ought to just feel like some linebacker put his helmet right in our gut. Wham! Listen to it. For in Christ Jesus, you are all, all, A-double-L, sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God in, by faith. Because Jesus came, because Jesus died in your place for your sin, because he rose from the dead, if you, any of you, if any of you is united to Christ by faith, you're not excluded. You're not limited in how close you can get. You're a son. Even if you're female, you're a son. There's a reason that word's chosen. Even if you're a Gentile. Even if you're a slave, Paul says, sonship, verse 28, the point of this, sonship is available to everyone in Christ. Now see, this is why it matters that it's the word son. Because in that culture, to be a son is to be an heir. To be an heir. This is not about, being a son of God is not about maleness. It's about Status. It's about access. It's about being an heir of God. It's about belonging to his family with all the rights and privileges of sonship. Now let's go back to our two examples. Now that Christ has come, 
It's no longer an unfinished atonement. It's a finished atonement. It's done. This is awesome. No more sacrifices. No more sacrifices. That's why we don't have an altar in here. Or out back. We didn't have an altar. When we wheel that table out for communion, that's not an altar. Don't call it an altar. I'm serious. It's a table. We have no altars. Why? Because there's no more need for sacrifice. The sacrifice is done. All those sacrifices of the law, they all pointed to and find their ultimate effectiveness in the sacrifice that Jesus made when he offered himself on the cross for our sin. Back to Hebrews 10, verse 11. I love this. Every priest, okay, so now he's, picture the temple, picture the courtyard, picture the altar. Every priest, you know there's no chairs? There were no chairs in the temple? You know why? Those guys didn't get to sit down. Why? Because they were never done. Never done. Every, uh, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because he finished the job. He finished the job. Verse 14, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Oh, let that sink deep into your soul. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If your faith is in Christ and you are living by faith in Christ, He is sanctifying you, but you've already been made perfect for all time by His sacrifice to be in the presence of God. It's finished! Yeah, that's what Jesus said on the cross. What was the final words? Tetelestai. It's finished. It's done. It's fully accomplished. The complete and final atonement for every one of your sins. No matter how ugly, no matter how persistent, no matter how awful, the complete and final atonement is finished. Finished. It's done. You don't ever have to wonder. You don't ever have to wonder if your sin is truly forgiven in Christ. There's only one thing that can keep your sin from being forgiven. There's only one thing. And that is refusing to come to Christ and putting your faith in Him. That's it. So unfinished atonement is now finished atonement. The other example, segregated access, is now equal access. Equal access. When you are united to Christ, you are family. You're family. And God invites all of us into his presence without distinction. Without distinction. There's nothing about you. Okay, think about this. There's not anything about you, racial, genetic, ethnic, 
social, gender. There is nothing that puts you at a disadvantage for knowing and worshiping God, for receiving His Spirit, for enjoying His absolute, utter, complete, total approval. Nothing keeps you from that about you. Now, the gospel does not abolish differences. What the gospel does is it makes those differences irrelevant when it comes to your access to God. See, God doesn't you know, let you get closer or keep you at a distance, or he doesn't like you more or less, or he doesn't approve of you more or less. He doesn't want you in his family more or less because of anything about you. Think about it. Now, I'm seriously, think about it. Okay, so maybe somebody out there, maybe somebody you know, would say something along these lines, or if not say that, actually think it, okay? Would say something like, you know, no, no, I really can't have God's greatest blessings. I can't experience his deepest joys. I can't pursue his highest purpose for my life because I am blank. Is there something you'd put in that blank? I cannot have God's greatest blessings. I cannot experience his deepest joys. I cannot pursue his highest purpose because I am. What would you put in that line? What would you put in that blank? Because of your background? Because of your family history? Because of your gender? Your nationality? Your education? Your job? Oh, because I'm only a... There's only one thing you can put in that blank for it to be true. It's this. I can't experience God's will for my life because I am refusing to come to Him and trust Him. That's it. Nothing else works. Nothing else is true. Now that Jesus has come, we are family by faith. Still not done. That's not the end of the story. One more. Soon, soon we will be satisfied in sonship. We will be satisfied in our sonship. Now, I'll be honest, I wrestled with using this word soon because sometimes, let's face it, it feels like a meaningless word. I mean, Jesus said he was coming back soon. It's been 2,000 years. Clearly, God is on a different timetable than we are. You know, you know I, actually, the Apostle Peter spells this out in the book of 2 Peter. He says, God is not slow about his promises and keeping his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient, patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. For with the Lord, a day is as thousand years and a thousand years is a day it's been two days since jesus came (laughs) two days but here's the value of the word soon this is why i decided to use it 
soon encourages a sense of anticipation. It encourages a sense of anticipation. And we need that. We need that, folks. The Bible calls us repeatedly to fix our hope completely on the grace to be given you when Jesus returns. We're meant to look forward because that anticipation, that sense of anticipation, that's what grounds our hope. That's what grounds our joy. If my joy and my hope is all built into you know, my experience here and now, I'm in big trouble because it's not going to work. That anticipation is meant to give us hope and joy when every wrong, every wrong made right, every tear wiped away, every longing fulfilled, we will be completely satisfied. And we need this perspective desperately. See, if, we don't, if you don't keep your future in view, if you belong to Christ and you don't keep your future in view, if I don't, if we try to find, we, what we end up doing is we keep trying to find satisfaction here and now in the stuff of this life. You know? We're just, I'm going to find it. I'm going to find that perfect job. I'm going to find that perfect uh, spouse, that perfect relationship. I'm going to raise those perfect kids. I'm going to help elect that perfect candidate. I'm going to join the perfect church. Those things don't exist. They don't exist. And if you try to find satisfaction in the things of this age, it's a fool's errand. And it's actually much worse than that. It's a form of idolatry. It's trying to find a satisfaction in the creature that we can only find in the Creator. And the uh, big problem is it makes us professing Christians look no different from anybody else who doesn't know Jesus. We have the same hope, the same joy, the same everything. It's not to be us. Never forget. Never forget. Because Jesus has come, if you belong to Him, your complete satisfaction is still ahead of you. But it's coming. It's coming. So we were limited by law, we are family by faith, and we will be satisfied in sonship. These are glorious truths. Jesus made these changes by his coming. And so let, let each one of those be a big, beautiful piece of firewood to put on your heart to stoke the flames of worship. I was talking to somebody before the service, reminding both of us that God seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus told us that. And he doesn't seek worshipers because he's arrogant or insecure and needs, you know, to have his ego stroked. He seeks worshipers because that's our greatest joy. To know and love and adore our Creator. And I'm just talking about singing songs. I'm talking about a life of worship. And we will be satisfied soon. Let's pray together. Father, what can we say? What can we say except thank you? Those words sound so inadequate. 
but we have no other words to just say thank you for what you accomplished through Jesus and his coming. Lord, help us, help us feel the weight of these changes and may these changes move us to worship and may we live with anticipation of our future satisfaction. And may, because we know that's coming, may we be willing to say no to things here and now and give our lives in service that others may know Jesus and look forward to his coming also. Keep our hope fixed on your return, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.